Welcome to Model Minority Moms, where we talk about the meaning of success in career, family, and life. We are Jeanette Park, Kate Wong, and Susan Liu, Harvard classmates and Asian American working moms who get real about the pressures of fitting in while standing out. Greetings, greetings. Welcome back to another episode of Model Minority Moms. And today, we are going to be talking about something we all have or wish we had, and that's our relationship to our mother tongues, our languages that we are brought up with. We'll talk about what our relationship to our native languages have been like, how that's informed how we wanted to raise our kids, and the reality of how it's all going down. So hopefully this will be a fun time for you to laugh at all of us or maybe reflect on how you want to do it different. All right, friends, we all speak different languages, which is pretty cool. I'll go first. So I'm Susan. I'm Vietnamese American. All my family were refugees. They came over from Vietnam and I was born in the U.S. So my household only spoke Vietnamese. And I remember when I started maybe like third or fourth grade, my mom was so mad. I started speaking English in the house. So she was like, every single word that you say that English, you're grounded for one day. Oh, and that's I've never heard of that one. <laughs> yeah. Here. That's brilliant and bad. Yeah. But, so I racked up a whole month oh in like God. a few minutes. And then I was so mad at her. I didn't speak to her for a week. And then she kind of dropped it all together and like, whatever. What's really being grounded when you're Asian? I had nowhere to go anyways. Like I had no agency. Right. But like at the same time, when I was about seven or eight, all these people moved into our house, my grandparents, my three aunties, and eventually a cousin. I just grew up in a Vietnamese world, and it was always like Vietnam all the time, at home, Vietnamese food all the time. You know, going to McDonald's was so like precious and exciting. And I just loved American TV. And I loved English. I felt like I could fully express myself in that language. And the interesting thing is with my three siblings, we never spoke Vietnamese to each other. We only spoke it to our parents and our elders. And because of that, during my first trip to Vietnam, I used the pronoun little child to all my cousins. And they thought I was hella dumb. Like, to refer to yourself? Uh, I was saying gong because there's so much positional pronouns in Vietnamese, like M versus an, younger sister, older brother. Are you the auntie or uncle on the mom or the dad's side? Like, did you marry in? Is this person who's a stranger older than your parents or younger than your parents? Yeah. Always right. calculating age. Like, we are great carnies. We could guess ages all the time. Like, I'm so good at guessing ages because of this, like, continual thing of obsession around those pronouns, but not amongst my peers. And so when I went to Vietnam, it's in the stories in the memoir. Like, they are cackling at me. They cannot handle it. And all of a sudden, I was like, I was like, you know what? F this language. I'm never going to speak it ever again. I was so embarrassed. How old were you, Susan? I was eight years old, nine years old at that time. Okay. And my Vietnamese kind of just like stayed at a very specific level. Like I'm going to say toddler to pre-K. And we used to go to Vietnamese language school until my older brother got us kicked out because he challenged the instructor because they're always like based at like a Christian school or something. So you learn about Jesus, you get Snickers and wait, you get Snickers, the candy or you get Snickers like people laughing at you? <laughs> no, the candy. <laughs> <laughs> like they put it on the car seat like when they were driving us home okay, good clarification okay. your parents but like i don't know who did this stuff but i praise jesus i'm a buddhist and i would get like attendance stickers so my sister and i are trying to learn the alphabet 
And the thing is, is Vietnamese language is a six tonal language. And then like you can't have like upside down hooks on you can have hooks on letter on vowels and upside down bowls and like question mark signs. It was like the hardest thing to understand. And Vietnamese language teachers like they have a stick. You either get hit or you have to pay attention. And it's not like fun Montessori learning. It's like feed it in your brains. Anyway, so then the teacher comes into the class and then it's like, get out of here. And I was like, what? And so that was the day my oldest brother got us all kicked out because he challenged the instructor. So then that, we left school. And then after my mom passed away when I was 11, a lot of my family members moved out. It was just me, my dad, and my sister after a while. We did speak Vietnamese, but like it's different when there's like a big community to reinforce. And we lived like an hour away from the Bay Area. So I wasn't doing like Vietnamese cultural things or anything. I go to college and I enroll in the Vietnamese. I'm like hell over high water. I'm going to learn how to read and write. It's so embarrassing when I go to a Vietnamese restaurant and I just don't even have the courage to really order in Vietnamese because I just feel like I'm going to botch everything. So that's kind of like where my Vietnamese ability is, is I understand most things a lot, you know, very conversationally. And after graduation, I moved there and lived there for eight months. And so now I have this like amazing Vietnamese agricultural vocabulary because I was working with cacao farmers, which is like not very useful for everyday life. But I started to build a new relationship with the language. I write a lot about Vietnamese language in my memoir. So it's actually a very important part of me, but it's still something I totally struggle with because I'm like barely using it. So then I'll talk to my dad and my aunt about it in Vietnamese. My dad, like, I don't know if there's a hearing loss thing or whatever, but most of the time he does not understand me, right? I'm going to credit it also to my terrible ability, I'm sure. And then my aunts and my cousin have seriously adapted to my way of speaking to the point where I think I'm actually pretty good at speaking Vietnamese. <laughs> but I think there's some kind of crutch here. Like, I'm definitely leaning hard on them because then when I speak to not my family, they're like, oh, you sound like a cute toddler. <laughs> yeah. Like, your accent's so funny. And then I'm like, oh, I'm mortified to do my audiobook because I have all these Vietnamese phrases in it. Which is important to me, right? And the food is important to me. My identity as a Vietnamese person is still so important to me. But at the same time, like, don't have me host the Vietnamese Grammys. You know, like, it's not going to go over well. So my relationship to the language is there was some discipline around it. You know, there was shame around it and embarrassment. There was a clawing back, wishing I could be better. But also, like, I'm so tired. I could be watching movies in Vietnamese and, like, doing captions and doing Duolingo. Like, sometimes I do it and then sometimes I quit. You know, I could be doing all these things. And then there's just other things that are more important. But I'm also scared that the tongue is, like, dying, you know? So anyways, that's my relationship to Vietnamese. So interesting, Susan. It's so interesting because a lot of what you said, Susan, as you were speaking, I could identify with some of it. And then the rest of it, I was like, wow, I had such a different experience. So, you know, I was born in China, came when I was almost six. I did not know any English. But of course, when you're that age, you pick it up really quickly. And I remember my parents said when I was in first grade, one of the things they will be forever grateful for is that my first grade teacher told them, don't worry about Kate or Ke, as I was known at the time. She will be fine but you guys should speak to her in your native language at home because she will not get it anywhere else. Because we were also in like a super white college town, Pullman, Washington, Washington State University, uh, for those of you who don't know what school that houses. And so my parents really took that advice to heart. And actually at home, we didn't even speak Mandarin, which is, you know, the official dialect of Chinese. By the way, Chinese is the language with many dialects, right? And we spoke Sichuanese dialect, which is, like I would say, maybe 40% mutually intelligible, 30% mutually intelligible with Mandarin. That's me. 
I mean, it's basically the same. It's like very different tones and there's like local slang and it's written all the same. But like if you go to a Citron, a northerner, Mandarin speaking person, you could maybe understand like some stuff, but not necessarily enough to like. Wow. OK. I totally understand. Yeah. 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 But, but it's not like Cantonese. Cantonese is even more different. Right? right. So it's not like that level. And so actually I would say my mother tongue is not Mandarin. It's the Citronese dialect. Spoken growing up, pretty much all of our family was in China. And so we started going back when I was nine. Every other year, my parents would drop me off or sometimes send me on a plane with some uncle, auntie, who would then take me to, you know, like this small town of one million people in Sichuan, where I would stay with my grandparents and my aunt, uncle, and my cousin, who's close in age to me. So for me, the Chinese language through the Sichuanese dialect was always associated with very positive things. Family, freedom from my parents with like this, you know, warmth. And I spoke it all summer. It was like Chinese immersion, right? All summer long. And at home, I also spoke it to my parents. Yeah, I don't think they ever had to threaten me to speak it. And I didn't learn Mandarin until I was maybe 10 or 11 in Chinese school as well. I mean, raise your hand if anybody ever liked Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese school in our generation. Never. No one ever likes it. It's it, like, so scary. It sucked balls because the teachers are very traditional. They use a traditional method. And if you think about the kind of American style school we were going to during the week, and then you contrast that with Vietnamese, Chinese, whatever, Korean school, which is a top down, you know, like lecture method. I mean, it's no wonder none of us were interested. Right. And so we just like goofed off. And I stopped going after a couple of years because I didn't really find it that useful. But also, incidentally, my Mandarin, because I learned it from Chinese school, which was mostly taught by people from Hong Kong or Taiwan, I got made fun of by my Chinese family and friends because it sounded like Taiwanese or Hong Kong like Mandarin. So there was like that thing. They're like, oh, oh, you sound like whatever. But again, generally a very positive association. I watched a lot of Chinese dramas growing up. I read a lot of Chinese classics in translation into English. Um, my mom actually, when we moved to the U.S., had brought over the entire elementary school curriculum of Chinese and mathematics in Chinese. They're like really small books, right? So she taught me at home. That's so hardcore, dude. I know. I know. I didn't realize this until I grew up. I was like, man, my mom really put like a lot of effort. So that's how I skipped two grades in math. And then also I was able to read, learn how to read some. Although for many years it stayed at like a super basic, I don't know, maybe like second grade level of reading, I mean. And then, you know, because of my positive association with all things Chinese, I like often do internships in China in college, you know, worked there on two different occasions for a total of five years after I graduated from college and, you know, worked with my dad in China. So all my colleagues are Chinese and like I would be in Chinese mode all day long. And so it's just such a different experience. But I think mine is, I would say, the exception among my other second generation Chinese American peers, because I think many of them have more of your experience, Susan, where I think they have more of a negative reaction because the parents like force them to speak Chinese. And I guess I can only say what my parents did differently is that they created positive associations with the language and culture. They never forced me to do things related to Chinese culture or language that I didn't want to do. It all came from me. And I think that makes a huge difference. And we can talk about later how it informs, you know, how I react to my kids. Yeah. Yeah. That was like my experience for sure. I'm so jealous. I also want to go with you to China and eat food because you're going to be a masterful orderer. But also I think the big difference is the summer immersion uh, yeah. where it felt like this like adventure for you. And then also like no one else is speaking English, right? Correct. Yeah. How many summers was that? Maybe like four That's summers. Fr from what age? Like nine. That's four or five so summers. Cool. Yeah. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. Like literally, I the only English I encountered that summer was basically I would check out like English language books like The Three Musketeers from the library. But then everything else, functionally, my whole life was not even in Mandarin, right? It was like in the Citron dialect. That's so cool. Yeah. It's so cool. Oh, I love it. Um, Jeanette, what's your relationship to speaking Korean? 
Oh, yeah. And yet again, in a lot of ways, my experience is different, you know, and with similarities with, with both of you guys. So like Kate, I also moved to the U.S. Around the time I was six, I didn't speak any English. I didn't even know my alphabet. And um, my parents didn't speak any English. But, but I think one big difference is that from the age of six till my teenage years, my family mostly lived in Koreatown in L.A. And Koreatown in L.A. for the uninitiated, it's changed since then, but in the 90s and in the early 2000s, was basically living in like a outpost of Korea. <laughs> you know, there was like so many Korean businesses. I didn't even realize this at the time, but later on I figured this out. Is that from kindergarten till third grade, I actually went to what I believe was the only Korean English bilingual public school in the United States. It was smack in the middle of Koreatown. It was called Wiltern Elementary. Sometime like in college, I kind of look back at my elementary school photos. I wonder why like all the kids in my class were Korean. Because despite it being in Koreatown, Koreatown is itself is really diverse. And I actually think there's more folks of Hispanic who identify themselves as Hispanic than Koreans. So you would think that if in a public school, it would be more diverse. But you look at my classroom pictures, all of us are Korean. So and then like my parents took a very laissez-faire approach to it. Like they didn't ban us from speaking Korean in the house. Like they did take us to Korean school for a few years. But like all of you guys, we hated it. We were basically always doing the homework in the car, like on the way to Korean school. Because honestly, like also you're in school the whole week and it's just hard to fit in so much material in one Saturday and then also to do all the homework or blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I feel like my parents didn't really emphasize it one way or the other, but maybe also they didn't have to because I had to speak to them in Korean or they didn't understand me and I had to understand them in Korean or I wouldn't know what they were saying. And a lot of our family friends, like all of them were Korean American. So at every social gathering, it was like mostly Korean being spoken. The kids would speak more in English, but it was like kind of with Korean mixed in. And then you go to any small business. It was like a lot of like Koreans and we would watch Korean TV at home. In L.A., actually, there is I think it's a publicly accessible station. There was two Korean TV stations and they just rented the airwaves for certain hours in a day. I think it was from like 7 p.m. until midnight. And they would play like the previous day's Korean news from Korea, some Korean dramas. And this was on public television in L.A. So I felt like even though we were living in America, a lot of my world was still in Korean for many years. And the church we went to was with all Korean Americans. So, you know, I was kind of just like in it. It was more in the water. And maybe that's my, why my parents didn't feel like this need of like, I need to really emphasize Korean learning to my kids. At the same time, though, I feel like my Korean is a lot better than my brother's or a lot of the people that I grew up with. I'm not really sure why. I think a part of it is, you know, being like older child, the mom complex, you kind of feel like, OK, I need to understand more so that I could help my family members communicate. And I also think I'm just interested in language. I think a lot of languages are like this, but, you know, you think about where certain words come from. And I think sometimes it's interesting or there's some wisdom into the etymology of words. So. You know, I think I'm just interested in language and maybe that led me to understand Korean a little bit better than my brother or some of my peers. So, yeah, I I know we're going to get into how that looks today. But even now, when I talk to my kids, there are certain things that I just say to them in Korean because I feel I can only express myself, that feeling in Korean to them. 
Um, they don't most of the time understand what I'm saying, but still like it doesn't matter. It's complicated how that lands. But for me, I feel like Korean is definitely still a big part of my life. Like sometimes I'll watch Korean dramas. I talk to my mom in Korean. I don't live in such a Korean immersed environment, but it's still a part of me, right? And how I understand myself and even how I feel like I need to express myself at times. Okay, I just want to emphasize about Jeanette's Korean ability is that she knows Korean proverbs. Okay, that's like next level. I know no Korean use proverbs. So that's your command of the language is that you can even speak poetically. Oh, yeah. But I mean, I think my verbal ability is better than my written and reading ability. And, and it's very uneven. I know the word for like politics or whatever through language, but like my reading and writing probably is at third grade level or like third or fourth grade level. Right. And if I'm doing it regularly, then it quickly improves. But if I don't do it, it quickly regresses. And, and Korean's a lot easier of a language to read and write than Chinese or I think Vietnamese as well. Yeah, I'll put Chinese as the hardest up there. I was going to say I'm similar to Jeanette in terms of reading, writing versus spoken African. I think that's very common for us, right? Like because the practicality that you speak to your family, it's not you're not always writing. Although I do have to say because I'm on WeChat and I use that to communicate with my colleagues, you know, various service providers, my family. So my written has actually been like, okay. But the other comment I want to make, which I think is interesting, I wonder... Susan, you alluded to it that your Vietnamese kind of sounded like it was spoken from a child because that was your perspective growing up. I was reminded of how when I go back to China and I speak in Sichuanese, like in Sichuan or even here, I get comments like, wow, your Sichuanese is so classic. It's so standardized. And what that means is because I speak Sichuanese with very little slang. You know how nowadays like there's just slang yeah, right yeah, everywhere yes. because, you know, we left in 1991. So, Jeanette, I wonder if you feel like your Korean is also kind of like, you know, a very classic Korean, right? Yeah. I feel like among young people in Korea these days, there's a lot of acronyms and yeah, slangs, you know, whatever the latest, like whatever. I think there's an academic word for it, like neologians. I can't remember. Anyway, there's a lot of that and I'm not really hip to all of it. And the ones that I kind of know are probably already a decade dated. But oh, the th- I remembered what I was going to say is I-, I do feel like, Susan, when you were talking about how your family like adapts to you, right? Like the crutch, yeah. Yeah, I kind of can relate to that because, I mean, I think when I talk to people not in my family, they can understand me. Like, that's fine, but it is different. When I talk to my family members, or especially my mom, we have developed such a way of talking to each other that is specific to us, that weird mixture and specific mixture of Korean and English. And sometimes I will have talked and I don't even remember what I said in Korean or what I said in English. Like we have our own version, right? But then when you speak to somebody who doesn't share that code, there's a little bit of an adjustment you have to make. And it suddenly feels a little bit harder, right? There was a part of that where I could relate. Totally. When I was on tour for my one woman show, I was in Orange County. And I think one of the channels, it was like SBT and Saigon Broadcasting Television Network was like, oh, why don't you come on the show? And can you speak in Vietnamese? I was like, you know, no, I think I'm going to fully communicate myself in English. They're like, but can you like segue? Like you could do a mix. You could do a mix. And I was like, okay. So then I tried. I have never watched that footage. (laughs) I'm so embarrassed. And I could tell, I could read the host that I think she realized it was a regret. (laughs) Like I was like, oh my God. Yeah. And then also, Kate, I want to piggyback on the Oh, you speak such classic Shiswan. When I was getting help 
I had a translator go through my book and also another Fulbright scholar from Vietnam go through my book and look at all the Vietnamese terms. And I really wanted to make sure I got everything right. And then they'd be like, no, correct this. And I'm like, you know what? That doesn't sound right. And part of it is the translator was Northern. We're Southern. Okay, you've got to kill that. But it was also because my Vietnamese is trapped in time from the 70s to the 80s when my parents, before they were boat people, right? Yeah. And, and they were in a rural area. They didn't finish high school. And all my translators are super educated, right? And they grew up in cities. And so I kept trying to be like, wait, 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 wait. I would pull back and I'd be like, can we just actually keep it this word? So they wanted to modernize the Vietnamese. And actually, I started to be like, hey, no, I'm doing something with my language here. Like, I'm making a point by saying the word that I knew because that is what happens, right? Is that your parents come over from a certain era and then the, the language is locked in a way. Yeah. Yes. Even though language is always evolving. Yeah, I think that that's kind of like a, I mean, we're looking at it through the lens of language, but I think that's a broader thing about the immigrant experience, right? The way your parents' values, the way they live, it does get locked kind of at the point when they stop living there, right? Yes. I feel like there are Korean American families who, like, if you go to their homes, it feels like they're in 80s Korea. The way that they have their furniture and the way, like, plastic wrap remote control (laughs) or the whole furniture has vinyl on it yeah i want to do that marvin's like no don't do that susan (laughs) what (laughs) she wants to cover her furniture in vinyl like a lot of asian immigrants do you know to protect the fact that's not so much a korean thing so i'm not going to comment on that but i think that's a more general thing is like people are kind of trapped and then i'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here but you become in some sense like a cultural orphan because your whole country has moved on, right? They're continuing to evolve as a broader society. And then you are here with what you took from that point in time when you departed, but nobody shares it with you in this new place, right? And so you're kind of trying to keep your traditions, your thing going, but it all it suddenly becomes like that bubble becomes much smaller. And so, yes, language is a huge part of that, but I feel like there are other parts of it, like the way you live, your values. It, it's part of the loss, I think, of being an immigrant. But yeah, it's something that I also started noticing. I'm like, I don't even think people in Korea do this anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. My friend and I were actually just talking about this at lunch. She's Korean-American. And she made the point that she felt, depending on where uh, your parents immigrated to the U.S., whether it's, for example, a small town that's very white versus a large metropolitan area where there's more diversity and maybe more like Asians from your similar background, how much culture your parents cling to or even how traditional they are is in some ways can be defined by that because she was saying that her in-laws, you know, moved from Korea to this like really small town in the Midwest in Ohio. It's like all mostly white people. And they really clung to like every vestige of their Korean culture. Like they only watched Korean TV. They only did this Korean this like Korean, Korean, Korean to the extent that they like ossified right into basically 1960s Korea. And so it's so interesting, whereas, you know, her parents, I think they lived in L.A., like they were much more cosmopolitan, also were more educated than her in-laws. And so they just had a different relationship with Korean culture than her parents. Man, language is so loaded, right? Like when people are like, oh, can you speak it? Oh, you can speak it? Or were you born here? You know, like people in your community treat you with your language and then your own story and journey with your language. It's like so intense, right? And so indicative of 
your parents' journey and your own like family upbringing. I love it. Okay, so thank you for sharing your histories. I still want to go with you to your respective countries and eat with you because I want you to order and eat. Like unpack that part of it a little bit. Which part? The shame or the pride like associated with how well you speak the language of the country of origin. Because I just want to understand why, why is there so much shame and pride associated with that? It's something I'm trying to unpack for my kids because they may experience shame or pride about how well or at this on the trajectory we're in, not well, they speak Korean, right? I think there's like some obvious answers. It has to do with identity, right? How you speak it is such like an indication of in-group. Yeah, how Vietnamese are you? Right. So if you speak Korean better than you go to Korea, people will say, oh, your Korean is so good, even though you grew up in the U.S. Or if you don't speak it well, or if there's some gap, like you feel ashamed. Well, in the U.S., if I meet an older Korean person, like let's say at a dry cleaner and I'm speaking to them, you know, there is that whole dynamic of, oh, I feel good when I can communicate with them. But then I feel bad if I am stumbling over some things or I have to switch or I misunderstand or they don't understand me. Right. And so could we just linger on that a little bit? Linger. It is really loaded. Like we judge each other on how well, you know, people speak or don't speak the language that, you know, when we're meeting with somebody from a similar ethnicity. Yeah. I got to say, when I was in Vietnam after college, I'm speaking Vietnamese, I don't know, random vendor. And then they're like, wow, your Vietnamese is so good. What are you, Filipino or Korean? And I was like, oh my God. They're like, how about Hawaiian? I was like, no. So that was hurtful. I know. I, I just don't practice. I don't practice. But I do when I, I do go to a nail salon, I get my pedicures. I need them. That's my self-care. And the pedicures will praise me. They're like, wait, 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 wait. You were born here? And then they're like, your Vietnamese is actually pretty good. But also, I think they know I'm understanding because there's a lot of eye contact or I'll be like nodding something along or there might be a conflict with a nail salon customer and I'll just kind of massage in both languages and solve a problem or something. And then they're like, but for being born here. And then they'll be like, but my kid, no Vietnamese, like they barely understand or whatever. Like I'm seeing kids who are like 18 to 22 starting to really grieve that their ability is like farther behind. There's something that I don't know. It's like I suck, but I don't suck too hard. You know, so I'm in this like weird in between. And I think because of having a kid, then I'm starting to think about it a little bit more. And I think it's so hard to remove cultural identity from language. It's like the pulse of it. And as I get older, I feel more secure about my ethnic identity and I value it more than when I was younger. And so I'm doing more of the clinging. But at the same time, like I'm never going to do another SBT interview in Vietnamese. I'm so terrified. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a part of me that feels pretty insecure still. I think that's very common, Susan, as you were saying this. I think you put it beautifully, which is that as we become older and we become more secure in our cultural and ethnic identities in a way that we weren't as kids, just because there's more, you know, awareness of our culture, like specific Asian cultures and Asian Americans have become more powerful voices. I see that a lot in Chinese Americans, my generation, who like hated going to Chinese school. Their Chinese is not very good. But now that they have children, many of whom are half, actually, because half Chinese, half something else, mostly white, or even if they have like 
you know, their spouse is Chinese American. Many of them are so dedicated, maybe even to the point of, I don't want to say obsession because obsession is almost like negative, but so committed to bilingual education or for their kids, even if they themselves don't have the linguistic ability to provide that for their children. And I know this so well because I'm in a bunch of bilingual groups and I've encountered so many moms. And I say moms mostly because that's pretty much 95 to 99 percent of, you know, the bearers of the language and culture in a family are moms. And we can talk about this if you guys want after this. But yeah, I I see that a lot. And you're right. It's hard because now as adults, you just don't have the time, capacity, mind space, whatever to like catch up on that language. And yet paradoxically, you're more proud of it now. Right. And I think that's so interesting. I think you put it really beautifully, Susan. I don't think people feel comfortable somehow talking about it, but I see it borne out in the actions of their actions toward their kids, like cultural and linguistic immersion. Right. Yeah. The irony here is like, yo, as a parent, I don't got time capacity for this. You know what my brilliant idea is? Go to language school and then we start the cycle of it all over. Right. No, no, it's true. Like the parents are projecting our desires for ourselves onto our children because we feel like somehow it's too late for us, right? And I I even have asked myself that now more as well. Uh, And I think it's really important to do that kind of self-reflection, right? Because how is that any different from like saying, oh, well, I wish I had had the resources to be a doctor, so I'm going to channel my kid towards becoming a doctor or something. It's not different. It's just that the vehicle is culture and language, right? But it's still coming from our desires for ourselves. 100%. And then it gets complicated when you marry someone who's not the same ethnicity. Because, like, if I do speak Vietnamese at home, I'm excluding my husband, you know? And I'm like, damn. Well, for maybe, like, newer listeners, you know, I'm married to a white guy from the Midwest. Susan's married to a Korean-Canadian-American. He's Korean-Korean ethnicity. Just his nationality is Korean. But but he identifies more with poutine than panchan. Okay. Ethnically, he's 100% Korean, but culturally, he's... Korean, Canadian, American. Yeah. If he could, he'd just identify with backcountry skiers. Like, he does not care about his ethnicity. And then Kate? I'm married to someone who's second-generation Indian-American born in the United States, who also grew up in small, like, rural, very white Midwest. So you have Chindian children. I have a Vietnamese. Do you have a celebrity name for your mixed-race kid? No, I don't. Korean, white. Like, yeah. Kappa, I don't know. So yes, language is loaded. And I think just coming back to the shame and the pride of it, right? I think a lot of it comes from the fact that in immigrant communities, we often felt outsider. And then when a bunch of people feel outsider, they feel like you need to be an insider in that outsider group, if that makes sense. A hundred percent. We're always looking for power, right? Mm -hmm. Even if it's only a little bit. And I'd be interested to hear how this played out when you were growing up in a mostly white environment. But even in Koreatown, you know, so first I started going to school in Koreatown, but then I ended up busing to uh, another L.A. public school. But it was in a more suburby part of Los Angeles County. So the biggest minority group was Korean Americans. Okay, but all the Korean Americans hung out together and there was a lot of, I don't know, like jockeying or um, like need to be in that group. But weirdly, I feel like when we were young, language was not a big part of that. But as you get older, it kind of does. Like, how Korean are you? Do you eat the food? Can you speak Korean? Do you watch Korean TV? Can you even understand Korean? You know? Can you eat the really funky food? Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to unpack that because I am trying to understand a little bit more what this might look for my kids. They're growing up in a very different context than I did. Yeah. 
So there's kind of the outsider in-group type of like dynamic where as a minority group, maybe you need to prove your affiliation. Totally. But then there's this other thing of it, which is, do I know myself? Do I know where I come from? And do I have an authentic connection to where I come from? And that feeling of rootedness of I know who I am and having that kind of foundation and strength to know who you are so that you can go out in the world and not have other people tell you who you are. And so I think that's also a big part of it. I'm just kind of spitballing here. I haven't written like a paper about this or anything. You know, I I feel like maybe as we get older, life, this feels more important is because we want our kids to know who they are because like I think instinctively we feel like that's going to be important for them as they enter their teenage years where so many other people are telling them this is who you are that they have a connection to where their families came from, right? And then not having that connection as evidenced by the lack of connection of language, et cetera, maybe makes us feel insecure that we're raising children who don't have a strong sense of identity, who don't know where they come from. Yeah, and just kind of like talking out loud, it's just like, what role does language play? It is this very thorny issue, but I'm trying to unpack like why. Yeah. I went to this like Vietnamese college summit for the Pacific Northwest and I was speaking there and they had a t-shirt that said, no history, no self. And the no was K-N-O-W. So to know your history, you would know yourself. But if you don't know, if you didn't see how it was written, it was like no history, no self, right? I still have the shirt and I wear it. And the more I look at it, the more I'm like, that is so profound. I'm seeing on college campuses the desire to preserve their heritage because they're at that juncture where it could really be lost. I'm, I'm excited about the future is also what I'm saying, but it's also very complicated when children, right? We're seeing all the conflict we have, and then now we've got children in the picture. So I want you to bring me back to when you're pregnant with your first child. You're holding onto your belly. Baby's going to come soon. What were you thinking about language with your child? Maybe baby is born and now it's like the first three, six months. Like, what are your plans? What are your big grand plans and how are you going to preserve your heritage with your children? Did you have a thought going into it or no, we're just like living day to day, figuring it out? Or I want to do the contrast, how it started and how it's going. It's very different how it started and how it's going. How it started was, you know, I, I did want my kids to speak Chinese, but I thought, you know, let me pack her off to some fun summer camps or send her off to my parents when she's older, right? Like during the summers, like I, I had done when I was a kid, but this is pre-COVID when I was pregnant with her. And actually the daycares that I toured were English speaking. I didn't have a requirement for like a bilingual daycare or anything. However, I think things really changed in large part because of COVID. And by the way, before COVID, I was going back to China three times a year for work and to visit family. And so I was pretty confident I would continue going. And then when, you know, Raya got old enough, I would bring her. But then COVID hit, couldn't go to China. My mom lived with us for most of the first year because, you know, she was alone because my dad was like in China. And, you know, I speak the Sichuan dialect to my mom. And we also had a Chinese postpartum nanny. So naturally, we started speaking Chinese. But I remember my mom and I and my dad had a conversation. What should I speak to Rai? Should I speak our dialect or should I speak Mandarin? And I was leaning towards the Sichuanese dialect because I had had a friend in France who studied children of mixed families. And she had said to me, you should always speak to your child in the language or dialect that is the closest to your heart because you'll be able to better express yourself emotionally, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, I mean, if I had to pick between Mandarin or Sichuan dialect, definitely Sichuan dialect, right? But my parents, being very pragmatic, said, well, in the U.S., she's going to communicate with other Chinese kids 
And the shared dialect is Mandarin, not Sichuanese. If we speak to her in Sichuanese, she will have limited ability to communicate with other people. That's where we started. It was almost like my hand was forced. And I feel like now looking back, my initial thoughts were much more laid back, loosey-goosey, like, oh, I'll go back to China, bring Raya, it'll be more natural, whatever. But I think COVID and then having my mom live with me really changed that path. But it's interesting because I started out lax and I more whatever. And I think it's very different from, from where I am now with my kids. Yeah. What about you, Jeanette? How did it start for you? Like you, you have a, a white partner. Yeah. When I was pregnant with Isaiah, my mom was living with us and she was going to continue to live with us for the foreseeable future at that point. She is not living with us currently and she's living with my brother because of some other reasons. So like it's kind of unclear if she will ever be having daily contact with my kids. Again, that is an unknown. But I think when my mom was living with us, I felt like, okay, he'll have some exposure to Korean because my mom and I communicate in Korean. My mom mainly communicates to him in Korean, so he'll pick up some of that. And I'll just bring this up too, right? I think also the dynamics, honestly, are different when you're a Chinese speaker in America versus let's say like you're from some very small country and there's not a lot of people from that country in America or just in the world. I feel like Korea is somewhere in the middle. Korea is pretty economically vibrant. I think Korea packs an outsized punch in terms of cultural exports. But in terms of sheer number, there's not as many, right? And so I feel like his Korean going to be of pragmatic value to my children for them to speak in terms of their ability to make friends, get a job or whatever. Like it's probably less likely to be useful for them. So there was that consideration. And I think we alluded to this, like I remember talking about it in some other episode that was not about language, but we touched on it, right? But it's like, do I want to make it a thing, make it almost a burden on them to feel like I'm putting this expectation on them that they need to know how to speak Korean? And I don't want to frame it that way because, Kate, I know you're not necessarily thinking of it that way. That's not what I'm saying. But I think a lot of people of our generation did feel that way, right? Like we felt like we had to. That was like an expectation of our parents that we needed to fulfill. And I think I did have this thought like, I am going to expose my kids to Korean to the extent that I want to communicate to them something specifically in Korean. And I want them to have a positive association with being uh, of part Korean ethnicity. But I am not going to make it a requirement on my end that they learn Korean because practically it's not of obvious great value. And also, practically speaking, I'm now the only Korean speaker in my family. So it presents a barrier in terms of communication between me and Jake. You know, when I'm saying something to the kids, he won't understand. There are no Korean bilingual daycares in Seattle or anywhere in outside of Koreatown, as far as I know. So it just felt like kind of an inordinate thing to try to fulfill in our family. And I guess my stance on it is, yeah, I want them to know about Korean culture. I want them to know some elements of the Korean language, but I'm not going to pressure them too much. And I think that I also want to acknowledge with them, even when they're older, that there is an element of grieving, like there's an element of loss of saying, this is what my family from past spoke, but now I don't speak it that much. There's a related thing too. It's like, okay, well, maybe you speak the language, but then how close are your familial connections? And Kay, maybe it's different for you because your dad is still active in China. You have a lot of extended family there. I have extended family there too, but realistically, we're not as close. And the cousins that they have are whatever, cousins like three times removed or whatever, you know? So how much are they going to feel they have family they can visit in Korea? So thinking of those things, I want them to not be ashamed of being Korean. I want them to 
have some familiarity, but I also acknowledge that there is a sense of loss there. And that's okay. I don't want to give them the sense of like, we need to keep this going in a way that's really hard for them and really hard for me. That's kind of where I am. So with that sense of loss, are you feeling that loss or you're anticipating they're going to feel that loss? Well, I think right now it's mainly me, but I think that they may eventually feel that too. I would actually rather that they feel that than feel like they don't have like a Korean heritage. I, I want them to know that there is something there that maybe they're not like as in touch with. Do you know what I mean? Like if I pretend like that wasn't there at all, then they may grow up being de facto just in, in white culture. So I want them to know, okay, even if I'm not conversant in it, fluent in it, as connected to it that, as my mom was, that there is something there, right? That that's kind of where one part of my family came from. And there's ways to reconnect with them when they're older, if they choose to do so, or maybe they marry somebody who's Korean or whatever, right? But I, I want to grapple with the whole of that, including the sense of maybe there's an emptiness, then just to say there's nothing there. It was never there. I'm just going to ignore it. If that makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense at all, what I'm saying. If they grieve it, they want it. They'll fight for their heritage. Or like it'll institute some form of curiosity in them to have their own identity journey. Yeah, exactly. I want that to be part of their narrative about themselves, right? I don't want them to just go from day to day feeling like I don't think about where my family is from. I don't really know. And I'm not curious. When I go to the colleges, when I visit, I can see the grieving that they have gone through because they're like, oh, well, my parents just wanted me to speak English at home so that I had good English. You know, or she would never speak to me in our tongue. It would be in English so that I could be better off. And I see them struggling so hard to try to learn it when they're older, right? Because there's a point when you're six, that's when your brain is like peaking in terms of like ability to really hone in on a language. Like you can learn things later, but it's actually when you're younger, right? Yeah. I I mean, I'm not an expert, but yeah, that's (laughs) very possible. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, so on my end... So my mom had passed away when I was 11. My identity felt taken away from me because all the family moved out and I had to go on a very intense identity journey to wonder if I'm Vietnamese enough. So for me, I felt like I really had to fight to reclaim that. And so when I was pregnant, there is actually a Vietnamese bilingual preschool called Hoa Mai in Seattle. So it was about like maybe like a 20 minute drive from the house. There's also Washington's only Vietnamese bilingual K through six, about a 15, 20 minute drive from my house when Google Maps is green, when there's no traffic. So I'm pregnant and I'm talking to Marvin about this and I'm like, we don't have to make any decisions now, but like, you know, you want to start getting on wait lists for preschools and daycare and all that. And I'm like, oh, let's consider these. And my Vietnamese friends were like, do everything you can, like speak it to them in day one and like. This is going to be great for them because we struggle. Our generation also struggles with keeping the tongue alive. And I was like, yeah, that's awesome. I'm going to do that. And I was pushing for it. And then Art was born. I I had to deal with all the other things, which is I had a major tailbone injury. I could not directly breastfeed and hold weight on my body. We were dealing with that in the beginning. And then Art, I don't know, he had like a busted like shoulder issue when he came out. So he was a delayed walker. And he's also a delayed speaker. So we actively do like a speech therapy for him. And he's still learning how to pronounce things. And about maybe like six months in, I talked to a relative and she was like, 
yeah, you should really stop speaking Vietnamese to him because that's why he has a speech impediment. Just focus on English because our home daycare that we're going to is Spanish immersion. So actually, he's getting way less English from us. And then also I'm speaking my broken Vietnamese. So I felt a lot of guilt around, oh, my God, my kid's having enough trouble as it is. Let's just go full on English again. Like, what am I doing? Like, so interesting that your older relative told you, no, just speak in English to him, right? You know, and this is a bit of a rant. Like, I feel like... Rant, baby. No, like, uh, with the older generation or parents' generation, it's so many mixed messages, right? It's like, oh, no, you need to speak English. That's why we brought you to America. No, but you have to still be Korean. Yes. <laughs> you I know? was just, yeah, I was just about to say exactly that. Right. Like, so yeah. it's like, OK, well, what do you want me to do? Be like superhuman? You can't be fully Korean and fully American. It's too hard to hold in one life. Yeah. And I wish that there was a little bit more of a release and an acknowledgement, because a lot of these choices to come to this country, we did not make. OK, our parents did. So they put us in this situation. And I feel like sometimes this is the ranty part where I'm like, well, I feel like it would be good, maybe, if they could just say, okay, we brought you here and we acknowledge that to be successful in America, you also had to make room for that. And that might have meant you lost some of the home culture that we grew up in. And it's okay yeah. that you lost some of that. I feel emotional saying this, right? Laura, it's like, it's okay that you lost some of that because we understand because we yeah. brought you here. Yeah. Instead of you can't meet this high standard of being bold, you suck. You're yeah. dumb. You're insufficient. Yeah. Yeah. And so as I'm saying this, I think that that's a little bit what I'm trying to give to my kids. It's just the permission that they don't need to feel ashamed because they can't do all those things. Like they're not growing up with two Korean speaking parents. They're not growing up in a Korean society. So yeah. it's okay for them yeah. just to be where they are, which is to live with one parent who's fairly connected to Korean culture, but to understand that they may not be like me. And and that's okay. And I understand that. And that doesn't make them any less. So yeah, I think that's kind of what I'm trying to convey to them. I think that's really important, Jeanette, that you said that because I feel like one of the reasons why I am the way I am in terms of my relationship with Chinese language and culture is because somehow my parents didn't do that to me. Other Chinese people did, right? Like, so my relatives in China would be like, oh, like, do you watch Friends, like the TV show? And then I was like, no. And they're like, oh, but aren't you American? But then in the next breath, they would be like, oh, how come you don't know this idiom? But my parents never did that to me. My dad said on a couple of occasions, he said, when we came to this country and we brought you over here, we know that you wouldn't grow up like a kid grows up in China. So why would we expect you to be like that? And I feel like for all the things that, you know, other things that my parents did that maybe weren't like the best decision, this is the one thing where I feel like they hit a home run because I look at other People, right? Like Jeanette, that situation is much more common. Even my husband, he was born here and his parents, I think, really wanted to maintain very specific Indian cultural and religious influences in his life. And unfortunately, I think what happened is he ended up driving him away, right? Because I think a lot of those dynamics, Jeanette, that you just mentioned. And I think that's sad. I think that happens so often, much more common than what I experienced. And I think it's a good reminder to think about how do we leave room for them to find their own way. What are we doing? Is it really necessary? Is it us? Are we projecting? And I think we mentioned that earlier. Yeah, who's this really about? Yeah, who is this really about? No, it's true. Who is it really about? And I think that's why every situation is so nuanced because, Jenna, I meant to, I was thinking about this earlier when you were talking about your specific situation and how it's different from mine. 
I think if everybody's situation is different, then we should be making different decisions, right? Based on our history and relationship with our culture and language, our ability, our partner, various other situations. But I think what ends up happening is it's like people feel like they have to make one decision, like a uniform one. Yeah, the decision to be the best, the decision to be perfect, the decision to be 100%. Right, exactly. That creates obviously stress on the parents, but also a lot of stressors on the kids, right? Like for me, my situation is very specific because most of my family is in China. Two of the three cousins I have in the U.S. primarily speak Chinese. And so that's why it's easier for me to do this, right? And I also have a really supportive partner. We do one parent, one language in the house, O-P-O-L. And yeah, on occasions, nervous, like it is kind of weird, like I can't really engage in some of these conversations, but I'm fine with it because I know it's really important to you. But I know that a lot of partners aren't able to, you know, they don't feel comfortable with that, right? And I think that needs to be respected. And I'm actually now at that point where I'm thinking, okay, maybe we need to have dinner conversations all in English because it is getting a little weird now that Raya is much more vocal and having conversations to like only talk to her in Mandarin and then Nerev being like, oh, what are you guys saying? Although his Chinglish has gotten really good and he can understand a lot of Chinese now, but you know what I mean, right? <laughs> it's like at that point where now it's it's a, yet another stage and I need to reassess. And so I guess what I'm saying is that there really isn't a one size fits all, but where does that pressure come from, right? Like I encounter so many second generation Chinese Americans who are like, I have to enroll my kids in these bilingual schools and like do all this Chinese immersion, all these Chinese activities. And it is just so interesting. Like, why? I don't know. It's hard. It's hard. These were all our thoughts pre-baby coming out. My kid, Art, is three years old now. He's still working on his language and he's not at an average level of his peers of English. And I don't even know how much Spanish he really does know. He said, the teacher's always like, say hasta mañana. He's like, hasta mañana. You know, like, but I actually do know a lot of Spanish. So it's like, sometimes, no, I'm kidding you. I won't do anything in Spanish. So he's three and a half now. And I told you about this amazing preschool in Seattle that doesn't exist anywhere else. This amazing K through six thing that doesn't exist anywhere else. And it's like a Vietnamese bilingual. It's going to be so great. Like I have the resources right in front of me. It's not going to be a weekend thing. He could totally be immersed in this if we choose this. And now us as parents, a big input factor on decision making is convenience. Convenience. We live a block away from an elementary school that apparently is like pretty awesome. Walk one block or drive 20 minutes maybe and back and there and back. That's really 80 minutes of driving a day so that I could like have him be Vietnamese competent and at least like some ingrained neural pathways of Vietnamese-ness is smeared in his brain so that if he wants to recover it in his teens or have a college self-discovery moment, he can. Marvin's like, oh, cool. Do you want to do the driving? And I was like, damn that. Because now I'm going to go on tour. I'm going to be doing speaking around the country. It's actually maybe going to fall on him or most of the time, right? to drive art there. And Marvin's like, not willing to do it. He's like, if I can't e-bike there, I don't know. I'm like, what? It's raining like 70% of the time in Seattle. You're going to drive a car, bro. And he's like, if I can't, I'm like, whatever. So now it's kind of all of my hopes and dreams and my traumas and my identity stuff is now confronted with a fact of like time, right? What's easy? Like pressing the easy button is like the most tempting thing in the world as a parent because We're co-sleeping in. Art kicks me a lot. And then sometimes I don't sleep as much, you know, or we're dealing with so much other stuff and people need to eat food to survive. You know, like 
Grapes are really to eat every day. I know. Grapes a day. I mean, I, there is the promise of Soylent, but the gas and the lack of variety, I don't know. And so it's just like the reality of trying to manage a household, have good enough days where we're like grateful and like, you know, spending high quality time together. Is it then worth it to do all those things? So, Jeanette, when I hear you do the parent math around like, is this actually truly practical? What is it in benefit? Like, like really thinking about it on the long term horizon. I'm sitting there going like, I get it. You know, I do get it. Yeah, I'm just saying that's where I am. That doesn't mean that's where everybody needs to be. And maybe this is actually a harder thing for some people to hear because they just need to make their own decision and live with that decision. Right. But I guess I'm just saying that I could see both things and both things are equally valid, like having a reasonable day to day routine because you don't want to be fucking stressed and tired all the time. But giving your kid a stronger sense to their cultural and ethnic heritage, it's valuable, right? I'm just saying like everybody needs to make their own decisions. Both are equally yeah. valid concerns. One thing that I was thinking about, and I think about this a lot now when Narev and I talk about our household and our vision for the future. It's like if we're a corporation, right, as a household or like an entity. Wait, did you read that Emily Oster book? No, I did not. What's a new one yeah, called? The, fa- the, family, the I, family. I read some of it. I read most the family went, the family, firm. family firm, I think. Firm, the yeah. The family firm, yeah. Well, sort of. I mean, I didn't read it, but is that what is your vision for your family for the future, right? What do you, what, what is the bigger picture? And then you work towards the details. Whereas I think oftentimes when we're caught up in the everyday, we're just like focusing on the details, right? For example, if I take a step back, the reason why for me personally, I'm continuing this bilingual situation is because we hope to take our kids to live in Asia for a few years when they're older, because I want them to be able to spend time in a place where they're not the minority, where there are other people who look like them. And I have so much family in China. And so that's like the big picture that I remind myself of that, you know, when times get hard, because I think I need that for myself, right? The other thing is that also when you're making decisions, you have to think about the universes you're inhabiting. For example, if we went all English, then the universe I would be inhabiting is English, English babysitters, English speaking schools, all this stuff. It's easier, right? In a sense, yes. But because of the path that I've chosen, which is to speak exclusively Mandarin to my kids, we have them in bilingual schools. All our nannies have been Chinese speaking. All our babysitters have been Chinese speaking. Even the people that we outsource cooking from now, Chinese speaking, right? I'm willing to do that. I'm on WeChat. I'm in these communities now. I have one foot in each. I have one foot in the English speaking community, both American and also like white American and Asian American. But I also have a foot solidly planted in the Chinese WeChat groups, which are comprised primarily 99.5% of people not like me, meaning people who are first generation Chinese who immigrated to America in their 20s or 30s or 40s. And that's not easy. I'm going to really confess that I have been feeling a lot of the, I don't want to say stressors, but there are strings attached to that. It's not free. I think if people look at me and look at my kids and are like, wow, Kate, your kids are so fluent in Chinese. That's so awesome. What did you do? It's not just me speaking Mandarin to them all day, every day. That's actually the easy part. I feel comfortable in and out. The hard part is finding their care providers, thinking about like as my older daughter, who's three and a half, she expresses herself in a more emotionally complex way. How do I keep up with that? How do I use tenets of this sort of more positive parenting or like child-centered whatever philosophies? And also it transform myself in the process. It's not just a matter of I speak the language. It's I have to re rewire my brain because how our parents raised us and the language that they spoke while parenting us, I don't want to use that on my kids. Oh, okay. Well, Dr. Becky says, say this. So let me translate that into Chinese. And they say that to my kids. 
that's not how it works, right? I have to really think about why is Dr. Becky saying this? Why don't I do that? Oh, it has to do with my upbringing. I have to talk about it with my therapist who's English speaking and she's white. And then, you know, it's all this emotional labor now as the kids are getting older. But like people who envy me and my kids speaking Chinese, it ain't free. It's at the cost of my emotional labor. And I'm now rethinking like, how much of this can I keep up? How much am I willing to keep up? I don't have an answer yet, but I'm entering that phase now, this season of my life. And it's fucking hard, guys. It's not just a language, not just like a culture. It's everything. Sorry, that was my rant. That was unexpected. But I felt like it's the first time I voiced that, truly. I don't want you to ever apologize for your rants, girl. Okay. Yeah, rants are welcome on the show. I mean, I it's the process of creating something new. For me, a little bit of the thread that I'm on, right? Which is like immigration, raising biracial kids. It's all the process of creating something new. And I think sometimes when you do that, there's somewhat of a loss. There's costs. There's choices to make. I I guess what I'm saying is I feel like there needs to be more acknowledgement of like the cost and the loss of doing that. Because I think when you don't acknowledge it, then you start feeling like you're doing something new, but you have to act like you're doing all of the old. And then that becomes very hard. So to my kids, if they ever listen to this in the future, you have my permission to do what you need to do. I hope that you feel somewhat in touch with your Korean identity and that you have an interest in learning more about it, but you don't have to do it the way that I did. You are something new. You are not me. Something new. Yeah, they are something new. I think I'm trying my best to kind of guide them and also like in a path that's not impossible, but transmits things that are more important to me. But I also understand that they are going to take that and do what they need to do and want to do with it. And and that's okay. I want to give them permission to do that. I love that. Kate, if Raya and Leela are listening to this when they're older, what do you want them to know? That even if I did something that they didn't like or that it was from a place of my trying to learn, right? Because I feel like along the way, no one ever has kids knowing how to be a parent. It's a first, it's you're being born as a parent. You know, you see those cheesy lines. It's not just two people, new people are being born. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I don't, but it's true. I was also being born, reborn, whatever, as a parent. And I think for us, as we've discussed, and this is sort of the core to our podcast, is that we came into parenthood with so many traumas, with so much history. And I would want my kids to know that I'm trying. You know, like this morning, I yelled at both of them. I yelled at Leela for the first time because it was just so hectic. And yeah, we just were really trying. And if I've hurt your feelings or I made decisions that you didn't like, it's not because I necessarily wanted things my own way. It's that sometimes I guess that's true. I did want things a certain way, but I but I also am able to take a step back and say, you know, I effed up and I'm trying. I feel like extending that asking the kids as adults, not as children, as adults to, you know, see myself with extend that grace to me. Yeah. I think if Art were listening, I would say, I'm glad we have a secret language. And hopefully I teach him enough that, you know, like when I'm in a store, I'm like, get it, let's get out of here, you know, whatever. Or I hope I give him just some basics. And maybe that's through a trip to Vietnam, you know, where there's a little bit of more immersion. I, and I think it will be through the book too. He will definitely know where he comes from 300 pages later. <laughs> you didn't remember? It's- Read it again. <laughs> but I, I hope he can feel proud of where he comes from. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you can give a TED Talk in Vietnamese. You know, it could mean many things to be proud of who you are. And it can look like many different things. 
I think that's beautiful, Susan, because that should apply to us and our listeners as well, is that having your kids speak your mother tongue fluently or them not speaking is not a reflection on you as a good parent or as a bad parent. Because I feel like today there's all this one note parenting, right? Like if you do this right, then you're the good parent. And if you didn't do this, then you're the bad parent. It's not like that. But I do feel like maybe many people feel that way about themselves when they see other people, when they see social media. I mean, the three of us have had really different approaches, methods, thought processes, upbringings. And I don't know that there's a good or bad. It just is. Yeah, nothing's binary. Jeanette, earlier you were saying that there are a couple things that you communicate to your kids just in Korean, just because that's the <laughs> best way you can express. Could you share a couple of those? I'm so curious. Oh, yeah. Sometimes when I feel very affectionate to my kids, I will use Korean phrases. I'll be like, which means like, oh, my little puppy. I didn't really hear that a lot from like moms or my mom. I think maybe moms are just more in the mode of get shit done, right? It's more like when you become a grandma and you can have the arms length and can walk out of the room where you have a space of mind to be like, oh, my little puppy, you know? So things like that, or there's a lot of baby talk, like TG is dirty. So I say, don't, you know, like my kids don't know a lot of Korean words, but they know certain words like TG is dirty. Um, or like mama is actually it's food in baby, Korean baby talk. Or obuba, which means piggyback ride. Or like popo, you know, is like kiss, right? And so there's certain kind of things that I will, yeah, I, I try to limit it more to the affectionate language of Korean. Sometimes just I feel like I can best express my emotions and connect to the people who gave me that emotion, like through those phrases. And so there's certain things that I will say probably, yeah, more regularly in Korean. When I'm putting art to sleep, I say, which is good night, mom loves you. But I do find myself like when he's like being really naughty or like he just he keeps at it. I want to yell at him in Vietnamese. And I stopped myself because I was like, oh, that's negative association shit. You know, like that's going to be bad. But that's where it really wants to come out. And it's so funny because that's when I really heard it from my parents. I just say it in the I hear it in my head. (laughs) I don't think I've said it yet, but yes, I definitely hear it in my head. So Uh, crazy, right? Like how deep those grooves of those neural pathways are. They're just like in it, you know, like it's like a... A monster truck just like went through our brains and like it's so deep. Those grooves are so deep. Well, you know, just been so lovely to talk about the mother tongue with you all. I wanted to wrap with my inside thought question. Since we're just talking about words, what are your cuss words around your kids? What do you say when you're like trying to fib it a little, you know, like just kind of like not fully, uh, but you're like, uh, like what is, how do you say it to your kids? So for example, for me, when I'm trying to be more mindful of what I say around my kid, and so I say, geez, a lot. I, I don't know where it came from, but I'm just like, geez. Like, especially when they're driving, or I'll be like, oh, my God. And then he'd be like, how come, oh, my God, ma? And I'll be like, because these people don't know how to drive art. But, like, I say geez all the time. And it's so funny because he reflects it back to me. So if I am like, brushing his teeth and a little, like, tooth paste suds get on his face he'll be like geez ma and it's so funny because like i never grew up saying geez i'm trying to catch myself so what are you doing in terms of a verbal rewrite with your children when you are pissed i actually don't think i have like a verbal rewrite so i don't use those 
that much, but there have been a few times when I definitely let a curse word out. I mean, yeah, it doesn't happen too often, but it happened recently when like Isaiah's second day of kindergarten, everyone else's third day because he missed the first day because he was sick. First day, we left his backpack, had to go back at second day. I Google Maps is spritzing on me and I'm driving to school. I take a wrong turn and I ended end up getting on 520 and going all the way to Bellevue and then having to drive all the way back. It's oh, my, oh my God. saying to me, mommy, uh, in kindergarten, everybody has to get to school at the same time. It's not like daycare when you can just come whenever, because that's exactly what I said to them, because like, I'm like, we need to just right. be more on schedule. And I'm like, I know, Isaiah, do you remember when we talked about like, exceptions? Um, You're so nice. But but when I realized I was getting on the highway, actually, and there was no way off until I like crossed the lake, I was like, fucking fuck. I said fucking fuck under my breath. So not sure if he heard me, but there's been a a handful of times when some choice curse words have come out of my mouth in the presence of my children. Noted. But also that sounds terrible. I've done that before where you're just like, you know, where you just, you know where this is going and all of a sudden you interrupt buttload of traffic and you're like all right yeah i'm just like i all right yeah because what are you gonna do right you just have to eat it what about you kate well i will confess that sometimes when i'm really like annoyed with narif because he didn't like do xyz like if he left like the kid snack from the previous day in the car or like he messed up the seatbelt you know when it gets twisted and i'm in a rush i'll be like oh in chinese i'll be like oh oh yeah baba which means Oh, Baba's so annoying, right? Like in Chinese. And or like, and then Raya, she'll be like, what happened? Like in Chinese. And then I'll explain her. I was like, oh, sorry. It's because, you know, Baba didn't do X, Y, Z. And then she'll be like, oh, in Chinese, shot Baba means silly Baba. And so then I realized, I was like, oh, no, you know, I really need to be like, you know, even if I'm annoyed with Narev, I shouldn't really say that in front of our kids because, you know, she'll think that like he's bad. He did something bad. It's not that he did something bad. It's just more I'm annoyed with him because something wasn't up to my standards, you know, and these are the things that are happening more frequently. And I really have to check myself from my first instinct because over time, yeah, once or twice, it's like funny or whatever. Right. But over time, I don't want her to have this idea that somehow, you know, Nerev did something (laughs) bad. Well, okay, so yes, here in another place where I'm like, it would be great to have an expert opinion. Not that I feel like there's one right answer, but just like one side of it is, yeah, maybe putting your partner down a little bit in front of your children is not the best thing. But on the other hand, what's the alternative, right? It's like to see your mom silently just cleaning up, not saying anything like the what's that message? That's also true. So like, what's better? I mean, I'm kind of like, okay, maybe there's other language you could use, but especially in the presence of your daughter, it's not like, okay, you know, that I have to clean this up now. That's a good one. I will say that next time in Chinese, you know, all a responsible adults should clean up their shit. (laughs) I mean, I won't say shit, but I'll say all their things. Baba should be cleaning this. Please remind him. I actually have her do that sometimes. Be like, you know, Baba will forget something. Remind him to not forget something, you know, but then I don't know that puts labor on her. That's a little bit unfair. But yeah, you kind of think about this. But maybe it'll change oh. adult behavior. Yeah. Okay. The end result is if adult behavior is changed. Happy mommy, happy baby. And that's all for Model Minority Moms. Thanks very much. 
We hope you found something helpful, reassuring, or interesting in this episode of Model Minority Moms. If you enjoyed the episode, please help us spread the word by texting a friend about our show or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to connect with us, please visit our website at modelminoritymoms.com or follow us on Instagram, where we love receiving messages from our listeners. 